Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, The Call of Jeremiah, Human Struggle with the Divine Summons, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 28, 2007. Duane had ended two tenures of successful ministry under circumstances that might charitably be described as awkward. Once, he joked, he had been fired because he couldn't negotiate his institution failures, and another time because the institution could not negotiate his failures. Both experiences, he wryly observed, proved the adage that individuals exist for institutions and not vice versa. When the passage of time provided him with some psychological space, a constellation of questions offered a rich fund for critical reflection. Perhaps he had a quirky personality. Maybe there was a bad fit between person and organization. How does one handle unexpected collisions between personal and institutional histories? And what about the residue of regret discouragement, and feelings of powerlessness about the past. Most of all, Duane wondered how the call of God could be consonant with his many human foibles. Thinking about Duane made me thankful for Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah begins with a divine call, a call which was itself the beginning of not only 40 years of faithful, if reluctant, service, but also 40 years of deeply personal struggle for the man the church has come to love as the so-called weeping prophet. And not only love, anyone who has ever heeded the divine summons can identify with Jeremiah. His many troubles remind us that there is no call without conflict and no summons without struggle. In the words of the young priest in George Bernanos's Diary of a Country Priest, quote, we pay a heavy, very heavy price for the superhuman dignity of our calling. The ridiculous is always so near to the sublime. And the world, usually so indulgent to foibles, hates ours instinctively. End quote. Jeremiah responded to God's call with protests about his personal inadequacies. His sense of inadequacy didn't derive from petty problems overcome by cheerful determination, nor from false modesty, nor was it a mere rhetorical device used by the writer. Across four decades of ministry, Jeremiah struggled mightily with God's call on his life, with a sense of failure, with virulent opposition from detractors, and with deep discouragement. His protests in the very first chapter, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 10, recall Moses' litany of fears, his lack of confidence, limited skill, insecurities about personal identity, and fear of rejection, Exodus 3 and 4. Similarly, they recall Isaiah's profound sense of personal sin in Isaiah chapter 6, 
And from this week's gospel in Luke chapter 4, even Jesus' own rejection by his hometown, Nazareth. The young priest in Bernanos's not novel keeps a diary to unburden himself to God, to cultivate a sense of brutal honesty, and to record what he calls the simple, trivial secrets of a very ordinary kind of life. The priest describes his rural parish as bored and boring, at times petty, often indifferent. He loves his people, though. He prays for them and visits every home at least once every three months. But like Jeremiah, Moses, and Isaiah, the priest's candor and introspection lead to deep disillusionment. He knows that he's physically clumsy and socially awkward. He ponders the absurdity of prayer. He agonizes over his loneliness and sense of isolation. When he shares the gospel, he sometimes feels like he's merely play-acting and parroting cliches. He compares his restlessness to a hornet in a bottle, his subsistent diet and inadequate salary aggravate a chronic sickness that causes him to loathe his body. He admits that he himself is responsible for some of these bitter disappointments. Reflecting upon his many weaknesses, he struggles with a deep sense of total failure, that his best comes to nothing. And from a merely human perspective, the priest isn't wrong to draw that conclusion. And so he frets about his call. Am I where our Lord would have me? He asks. Twenty times a day, I ask this question. The priest's superiors give him some wise advice about persevering amidst questions and about his call. Keep saying your lessons, they tell him. Go on with your work. Keep at the little daily things that need doing till the rest comes. Concentrate. Think of a lad at his homework, trying so hard and his tongue sticking out. That's how our Lord would have us be when he gives us up to our own strength. Little things, they don't look like much, and yet they bring peace. Like wildflowers which seem to have no scent, till you get a field full of them. Any and every call needs perseverance like this. But God gave Jeremiah something far more precious than an exhortation to perseverance. God promised his divine presence. We read in Jeremiah chapter 1, 4 to 10, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So don't be afraid. I am with you. Believing this divine promise required the audacity and courage to believe that God the sender knew just who he was sending, that God's message lives independent of the messenger, and that God's presence gave perspective to any problems. Conflict was not inimical to God's call. Like Moses in Isaiah, Jeremiah learned to acknowledge rather than to deny, and even to overcome 
his many inadequacies. In the poignant novel Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, the narrator pastor John Ames ponders a lifetime of listening for God's call. He reflects upon his accumulation of life experiences and how they've woven a rich tapestry whose beautiful texture could only result from many different strands. Frailty and failure, memory and mystery, darkness and disappointment, regret and reconciliation, and weaving it all together, sheer gratitude and joy at how remarkably beautiful the resultant garment of his life still is. And so, near the end of his life, Pastor John Ames writes to his son words that I would think Jeremiah would appreciate. I always imagine divine mercy giving us back to ourselves and letting us laugh at what we became, laugh at the preposterous disguises of crouch and squint and limp and lower we all do put on. I enjoy the hope that when we meet in heaven, I will not be estranged from you by all the oddnesses life has carved into me. And now for further reflection. Contemplate Paul's own sense of inadequacies in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Imagine that the promises of God in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 10, are spoken directly to you. Number three, what have been your own conflicts and struggles in God's call on your life? Number four, in what ways do you identify with Duane, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and even Jesus at his rejection in Nazareth. And finally, for further reflections on vocation and calling, see the novel by George Bernanos, The Diary of a Country Priest, Marilyn Robinson, Gilead, and then the book by Parker Palmer, Let Your Life Speak. For books this week, I review Jesus, Uncovering the Life, Teachings, and Relevance of a Religious Revolutionary by Marcus Borg, San Francisco Harbor, 2006, 343 pages. Marcus Borg, professor at Oregon State University, is one of a very few prominent New Testament scholars who writes for the everyday Christian who declares his passion for a vibrant faith, who shares personally from his own experience, who is unapologetic but ironic in presenting his views, and on top of it all, on top of it all, an excellent writer. Although I have my disagreements with Borg at any number of places, I've previously enjoyed his other popular books, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, 1994. Reading the Bible Again for the First Time, 2001, and then in the book The Heart of Christianity, 2003. 
If you've read these previous books, you won't learn not much new by reading this book. The book began as a modest revision of his 1987 book, Jesus, A New Vision, but has been marketed as a new book because of the revisions that were so extensive. Borg promotes what he repeatedly and irritatingly calls, quote-unquote, mainstream scholarship, as if others who were not part of his club are best disregarded. He does a good job of incorporating that movement's strengths, and at times admits where and why some issues are complex, why opinions are divided, and why some choices in New Testament interpretation are more like a subjective art. But he ignores the corrosive tendencies of extreme historical criticism, along with the best evangelical scholarship that has interacted with it. What he calls the emerging Christianity of mainline denominational positions, positions itself in clear contrast to conservative evangelicalism. The latter, Borg believes, is wrongly preoccupied with biblical literalism, the afterlife, and believing right doctrines. The emerging Christianity which he supports is what he calls way-centered instead of being belief-centered. Whereas evangelicalism represents what he calls a defensive rejection of the Enlightenment, his vision attempts what he calls a discerning integration. Central to Borg's method is his effort to distinguish between history remembered or pre-Easter memory in the sense of events in the life of Jesus that really did happen in post-Easter metaphor in the sense of the constructions of later Christians. The former constitutes the real voice of Jesus, the latter the voice of the community. Implicit in his distinction is the, the insinuation that the voice of Jesus enjoys an epistemological privilege over the voice of the community. Many, of course, have observed this wedge driven between the so-called Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Borg tries mightily to resist that temptation. He says, A historical, metaphorical way of reading the Gospels does not see them as fantasy or exaggeration or deception, but as the testimony and witness and convictions of Jesus' followers. Or again we read, the metaphorical meaning of language is it's more than literal, more than factual meaning. Metaphor refers to the surplus of meaning that language can carry. Fair enough, but Borg never addresses what a believer ought to do if, as would be the case with him, she thinks that the later believers were simply wrong when they claimed that Jesus was God in the flesh and that the Easter tomb was empty. Borg rejects the historicity of both beliefs. The best he can say is that either way, it doesn't matter. That's hardly a satisfying answer to me. It does matter, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 19. Borg shines when he expounds how Jesus reveals the character or nature of God, which is compassion in his passion or will for the world, which is justice. 
I especially appreciated his exposition of the centrality of the kingdom of God and his demonstration of how God's kingdom is both deeply personal and explicitly political. If Jesus is Lord and Borg passionately confesses that he is, then Caesar and imperial powers are not Lord. In his subversive wisdom and teaching, Jesus challenges all such idolatrous principalities, powers, and authorities. Praying the Lord's Prayer for this kingdom to come is, then, a way of confessing what earth would be like if God and not the state powers were in charge. And that is truly good news. Marcus Borg, Jesus Uncovering the Life, Teachings, and Relevance of a Religious Revolutionary. For film this week, I review Little Miss Sunshine from the year 2006. Life is nothing but a beauty pageant with everyone judging you all the time. So complains Duane, a sullen teenager who reads Nietzsche and scribbles notes to his dysfunctional family because he's taken a vow of silence. And that's not a bad move, by the way. Duane's father, Richard, spouts cliches about his motivational series called Refuse to Lose that is, in fact, an abysmal failure. Wife and mother, Sherry, is the peacemaker enabler. Her brother, Frank, is a Proust scholar who tries to commit suicide, while her foul-mouthed father, who lives with the family, kills himself snorting heroin. Welcome to hell, Duane scribbles to Frank. Little Olive, the darling of the family, won a trip to the Little Miss Sunshine beauty pageant. So the entire family piles into their dilapidated VW van for the 800-mile trip from Albuquerque to Redondo Beach in California. They endure the calamities and indignities you would expect, then find redemption of sorts that bespeaks a larger and more serious lesson to all when they deconstruct the Little Miss Sunshine beauty pageant in unlikely ways. Thank God for the Harris family. Little Miss Sunshine. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted the poem called The Sinner by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. Lord, how I am all of you when I seek what I have treasured in my memory. Since if my soul make even with the weak, each seventh note by right is due to thee. I find their quarries of piled vanities, but shreds of holiness that dare not venture to show their face, since cross to thy decrees. There the circumference earth is, heaven the center. In so much dregs the quintessence is small, the spirit and good extract of my heart comes to of about that many hundred part. Yet, Lord, restore thine image, hear my call. And though my hard heart scarce to thee can groan, remember that thou once didst write on stone. The Sinner by George Herbert
And thank you for joining us with journeyatjesus.net for Sunday, January 28, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.